from our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to It's All Political, the Chronicle's politics podcast. Today's guest is Stacey Abrams. She is running to be the governor of Georgia. And if she wins, she would be the first African-American woman to be a governor anywhere, like ever, in 241 years of the nation's history. And she has some interesting ideas about how the Democrats can actually win races, something they don't do a lot of anymore. I'm Joe Garofoli, and this is It's All Political. Welcome to another episode of It's All Political. Today, our guest is Stacey Abrams. And until August 26th, she was the Democratic Minority Leader in the Georgia Legislature. And But she resigned to devote all of her time to run for Georgia, for the governor in Georgia next year. Stacey, if, if you win, you will be the first time in the 242-year history of the United States that an African-American woman would be governor of a state, any state, ever. When yes. I tell people that stat, they're like, they don't believe that. But that's... I, I describe it as people being shocked but not surprised. Amen. And there's only six female governors in the United States right now, and only 200 Democrats. Um, you're here in the Bay Area for the same reason that all Democrats <laughs> from other states come to the Bay Area, for a fundraiser and a friendraiser. As you say, you've been doing a couple of fundraisers here. Um, but we wanted to talk to you because you're in the sort of in the leading edge about how Democrats are running for office now. At least some are. And you have some different ideas about how to do it. Let's face it, Democrats have lost a thousand seats across the nation at various levels over the last eight or ten years. And you are calling for running an, quote, unapologetically Democrat campaign for governor. We'll get into what, what that means. Uh, but first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're born in, uh, or you grew up in Gulfport, uh, Mississippi. I did. One of six kids. Your parents were both ministers. Man. That's, that's got to be tough. Well, they became ministers later, so they were just sanctimonious before and then eventually became official. <laughs> uh, so. They are codified sanctimonious exactly. after that. Okay. And it wasn't always easy growing up. You no. uh, public assistant sometimes, but mm-hmm. you walk us through from your, your childhood to Yale Law School and ultimately in the Georgia legislature. So first of all, thank you for having me uh, on this morning, and it's been lovely to be in San Francisco. So, yeah, I was actually born in Madison, Wisconsin, which I understand your wife is also yes. a Madison native. I did learn to say go Badgers as a child. I remember being cold, and I remember cheese curds. That's uh, but we well, moved. got to remember. <laughs> exactly. We moved back to Mississippi when I was three, three and a half. My mom was in grad school, but my family's from Mississippi. And so after my mom finished school, we went back. My mother is a college li- well, was a college librarian. My dad was a shipyard worker. Uh, and so they worked hard but could often find themselves without the ability to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom didn't like calling us the working poor, so she called us the genteel poor. Ooh, we I had no that. money, but we read books and we watched PBS. Uh, <laughs> you but, can just coined something there, the, the genteel poor. The I'm genteel read... poor. All right. uh, because my, my parents really believed that, I mean, they had come out of abject poverty in Mississippi, and while we had not gotten as far as they thought they would based on doing all the right things, they still believe their children would have another opportunity, that they could crack this generational poverty. Mm-hmm. And so they raised us to believe in three things, go to church, go to school, take care of each other. And the taking care of each other for them was not only about us, 
but us working to help other people. Uh, my parents would tell us, no matter how little we had, and sometimes we didn't have running water, sometimes you know we couldn't pay the light bill, we went you know weeks without a telephone, even though we lived in the city. Um, mm. What my parents wanted us to understand was that there were others who had less, and it was our job to serve that person, mm. that we couldn't wallow in our circumstances, that the responsibility we had was to always serve. Uh, they did a good job of indoctrination, <laughs> and so I've been on, uh, my mother is very good at coining phrases. I'm also on what she calls my trajectory of downward economic mobility. So <laughs> I grew up in Gulfport. We moved to Atlanta. When I was about 15, my parents decided to become United Methodist ministers, make our poverty permanent uh, so they could serve people who could never afford them. Uh, they both went to Emory for grad school, moved back to Mississippi, but I graduated from high school in Georgia, went to Spelman College in Atlanta, went to Texas for grad school at the University of uh, Texas at the LBJ School, then went to Yale for law school, and then had to get a job. Mm. And I became a tax attorney. Mm. And so then the downward trajectory is public, the life of public yes. service after that. So yeah. I was a high-paid tax attorney for a few years, you know, halcyon days where, you know, I was I actually made more money and paid more money in taxes than my parents made in a year. Wow. Uh, and decided that was way too much money, so I quit and became a deputy city attorney for the city of Atlanta. That was way too comfortable, so then I quit that job to start a business and run for the state house. And now I'm completely unemployed, writing a book and running for governor. And, you, and we'll get to this later, but you have yes. also written, what, eight books? I've but published. these are romance, sort of romance mysteries. Yes. Okay, well, we'll get to, we'll get to those later. <laughs> but let's, let's, let's get to the, why people are tuning into this. And uh, so let's talk about running an unapologetically Democratic campaign for governor. Right now, the Democrats don't know where they're at. Who are we? Who do we appeal to? If you ask the uh, Democrat their core, the core message, we, we get various things. Uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer came out with this roadmap the other day that sounded like you know kind of reheated oatmeal. Uh, what? Tell me what an unapologetic candidate for governor is. I believe we have to stop trying to massage our message to convince lapsed Republicans that they want to come back. Uh, I believe that you talk to the people who agree with you. You talk to everyone, but you focus your attention on your core constituency. And the, the juxtaposition I draw is that I've never heard a Republican say that we have to adjust our message to go after moderate Democrats. Mm. They have core principles that they believe in, that they adhere to, and they, they run on. Democrats, we are so, I think, um, afraid to be ourselves sometimes. We forget that we are the party of the people. But the reality is the people look and sound and need different things depending on where you are. So a Democrat in California is not going to have the exact same message as a Democrat in Georgia. And my message is not going to be the same as a Democrat in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. But we all have the same core values, economic security, educational opportunity, and a shared responsibility because we believe government has a role to play in our lives. Mm -hmm. That role should vary depending on the need. But if Democrats hew to that, if we're willing to talk about that and stop being afraid of it or stop trying to mimic Republicans and their, their sound bites and their lexicon, I think we will actually win more elections. And before we, uh, we invite you to, to participate in our conversation, too, you can go on our Facebook Live uh, page and make some comments there or, or ask a question, and we'll try and incorporate it into our conversation. So... But this, so and part of this is rooted in the demographics, the very changing demographics in Georgia. You believe that if you pull together a coalition of people of color, progressive white folks, that 
that is a winning ticket. Absolutely. Walk us through how that how, how that works. Georgia today is not the Georgia of Gone with the Wind. It's not the Georgia of you know the of you know the Olympics even. Georgia today is fifty three percent white, non Hispanic, forty seven percent people of color. And in the Deep South, and particularly in Georgia, race is one of the strongest predictors of your political leanings. Is it, is it more of a predictor than party affiliation? Well, because we do not register by party in Georgia, if mm-hmm. you want to figure out how someone's going to vote, mm-hmm. you, can look like, you can look at a you know, raft of microdata, but the one that's going to be the strongest indicator is race. Black folks vote for black folks, white folks for white folks generally? Well, or no, what? black folks vote for Democrats, Latinos okay. vote for Democrats, Asians vote for Democrats. Some white folks vote for Democrats. Okay. So, and, and we we stray away from, or we tend to shy away from that conversation because there's a sense that acknowledging that race exists is somehow, you know, creating some negative connotation. Right. I, I'm kind of obviously black. It's hard to miss me. <laughs> and so the question is not what is, do you acknowledge my race, but what does that race tell you about who I am? Right. And the challenge we have is to use race as a marker and that is uh, the whole story. And so for me, when you think about democratic politics, coming back to the demography, African-Americans have traditionally found that the Democratic Party's values reflect their own. Mm-hmm. Latinos largely vote the same way. The Asian Pacific Islander community in Georgia votes Democratic more than it votes Republican. Whites is about 23% of the population votes Democratic. To win an election in Georgia, you need 50% plus one. If you've got a solid base of 23% white progressive voters, what you're looking for is the corollary to get you to 50% plus one, and there are enough people of color in Georgia today to do that. Are there enough voters, though? Yes. And the reality is those – so when I talk about the population, so that's the general population. The voting population is slightly skewed, so it's closer to 60% white. But even then, you have enough people of color with that 23% white base that if you actively engage communities of color and talk to them the same way we spend time talking to those – who have been gone from the party for almost 20 years, you can build a winning coalition. For me, this isn't just theory. As minority leader, Republicans, when my first year as leader, did redistricting. They took all of our seats. We had 56 Democratic seats. We hold 62 seats today. And that's because as leader, I had us go into regions that were Republican seats where you had this community that was ignored, community of color and some progressive whites that Republicans just assumed wouldn't vote. Mm -hmm. We went in early. We talked to them. We talked about unapologetically Democratic issues, and we have flipped six Republican seats since 2011, since 2012. We have held those seats. We have been able to stop Republicans because we do not pretend to be Democrats in those, I mean, pretend to be Republicans in those districts. We run Democrats. And because we've been able to do so, We've been able to beat Republicans in their own hand-drawn districts. What, explain how you go in and you talk to a, a community of color that's different than the way the National Party is. The National Party is, you know, uh, Democracy in Colors has mm-hmm. detailed this, uh, which is here in, based in Oakland, um, is detailed this in, 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 great, in, in great detail, where uh, so much money is spent on TV commercials, very little comparatively on grassroots organizing, mm-hmm. especially in communities of color. Tell us how you did it in Georgia, and what lessons can we draw from that for the National Democrats? The first thing is I don't sound any different in a white community than I do in a black community or a Latino community Mm -hmm. or an Asian community. Same message. Same message, Mm -hmm. because we all want the same things. Mm -hmm. The issue is, as Republicans, there is a 
basic ethos that is an individually driven mm -hmm. society that each person will yield their own benefit. Mm -hmm. Democrats believe that we're in this together. And so the conversation I have is about how do we get it done together so that you can succeed individually. That conversation resonates regardless of race, regardless of region. The issue is not what do you say, but do you bother to talk to those communities? And the challenge Democrats have had is that we talk a great game about the need to actually do that outreach, but we relegate that outreach to the last few weeks of a campaign to a very narrow sliver of voters, and we repeatedly ignore those infrequent voters because they don't vote. Well, they don't vote because we don't talk to them. So we create this invirtuous cycle where they don't vote, we don't talk, and then we talk about why they don't vote. <laughs> yes. And we just uh, we yeah. just got through a round of that. Yes. And so it's, so what, if you had to distill, what's your bumper sticker message sure. for Democrats? So I talk about the fact that we spend too much time as Democrats fighting about survival and we talk about success. And success, we know, is proven to have three ingredients. One is educating bold and ambitious children from cradle to career. Mm -hmm. so you can't just cherry pick when you come in. It's mm -hmm. got to start at the very beginning. Secondly, we have to build a thriving and diverse economy in every community. You can't have these bastions of success where everyone else is just struggling to get by. And we can't talk about jobs as though a job is the answer. It has to be a good job. It has to be a good paying job. Mm -hmm. And those jobs have to be in every community. And the third is that we have to have an engaged and empowered government that can do its job well. And that's protecting civil rights. That's defending us against voter suppression. But it's also about expanding Medicaid in Georgia to access health care. It's about criminal justice reform so that every member of our society is valued. It's about protecting immigrants. So it's thinking about how do you use government to do better, to do infrastructure, to do transportation, but also to take care of its people in the way it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. You do those three pieces, education, economics, and good government, and you have a winning formula. And let's talk a little bit about the New Georgia Project, yes. which, which you've... Uh, Started. This is between 2014 2016. You registered more than 200,000 voters. Now, we have to also say that this was there was a fraud investigation into it. Sure. It was clear that the invest that the organization was totally clear what they did. Absolutely. They did find 53 allegedly forged voter applications out of the out of the 200,000. Um, but the organization itself was cleared. Those are the, your uh, state elections board is going to be looking at that um, to see how that happened. Sure. So tell us a little bit about how you did this. You actually, so this is more than just, as you say, this is more than just a game. You, you got on the ground and did this. Absolutely. I, I, I have a genetic predisposition to do things. Uh, so, you know, my parents didn't just preach. They decided to become ministers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but not only that, they made themselves go to grad school to learn how to do it. And so for me, the conversation is always not only what is the problem, why is it a problem and how do you solve it? In Georgia, we had 800,000 unregistered people of color in 2014. That's South Dakota. Wow, 800,000 out of a possible universe So there are 10, there are 10 million, uh, 10.5 million people in Georgia. Okay. Uh, so in roughly 6 million eligible voters. Okay, and how many eligible people of color? Uh, so roughly about 40% of the population uh, is communities of color who could be eligible to vote. Stacey, you're making me do too much math there. I, how many? <laughs> so here's the way I think about it. So 56%, more than half of the kids in mm -hmm. our public school system are children of color. Okay. A million of their likely parents, almost a million of their likely parents weren't registered to vote. Wow. So when you think about that in terms of just civics, putting aside partisanship, 
it's bad for any community to have so many voices that are silent. And the reality was we weren't asking them to vote, mm -hmm. Democrat or Republican. Mm -hmm. I used a nonprofit that I started during law school uh, called uh, Third Sector, and I created the New Georgia Project. I'd used it the year before to help boost signups for the Affordable Care Act. And used, once I saw the effectiveness we had, I thought we should use it for voter registration. Mm -hmm. We hired a national firm to come in and help us because Georgia is a huge state, and 800,000 is a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and so our goal was to register all 800,000 by 2024, so a 10-year project. The first year, we registered 86,000 people, mm -hmm. 40,000 of whom didn't make the rolls. We challenged the Secretary of State for not processing them. He then accused me of fraud. Uh, we were able to prove that we turned in the forms. We took him to court, and the state court didn't find against us. What the state court said is that the Secretary of State had no obligation to actually process the forms in time, which most people don't realize. We pursued the case anyway. He processed 18,000 of our voters after Election Day. So people who'd registered in time were not allowed to vote in Georgia. We then kept suing him. And in 2017, he had to restore the canceled registration of 35,000 voters, including thousands of ours. Uh, but overall, we've been able to get 800, 211, 215,000 people registered. The reason this matters is that that changes the conversation. Uh, that gap for elections in Georgia shrinks every time you add a new voice. And the more voices of color who more and more reflect the composition of the state, the more robust the debate becomes. You, you've likened trying to convince a Republican to uh, like an atheist. What is an atheist trying so, to convince a Catholic? So, or Help me out on that. So I, I, my argument with the Democratic Party is we spend a lot of time trying to get atheists to become Catholics. Yeah instead of getting Baptists to go to church. I'm very Southern. Yes. Uh, so if you think about the, the, the Republican ideology, I can either try to convince a pro-life, anti-union, uh, anti-environment Republican to become a Democrat, or uh -huh. I convince a pro-choice, pro-union, pro-environment Democrat to come and vote. We spend most of our money trying to do the former. My why, parents why do we do why does the why does the party do that? Because we are more comfortable with the known voter universe, and that tends to be white voters who turn out regularly. Mm. But if they are turning out to vote for your opposition, we have created this this mythology that if we just say it loud enough and often enough and we point out how wrong the other side is, they're suddenly going to change their minds. My parents are ministers. They their job is to help people understand their ideological basis. They, they do it from a space of religion. And what I would tell you is, it's hard enough in religion. It's nearly impossible in politics. People don't change what they believe, and they shouldn't be asked to. What I want is not to convert your beliefs. I want to convert your behavior. Because I'd rather convince people who already agree with my ideology to do something about it than to spend all of my money and all of my effort trying to convince someone who's told me many times now in multiple election cycles, I don't agree with you. Right. But you make your money trying to go after those voters because they seem like a bright, shiny object. I am fundamentally concerned that we do not believe as much as we should in the daily investment in communities of color, in low-income communities, in rural communities. We write them off. We assume that they're just too hard to get to, too expensive to talk to, and that congenitally they're not going to vote. I don't believe that's true because I've seen the difference. I've seen New Georgia Project voters who've been ignored for decades take that voter card and go and try to change their community. 
that matters. Now, you, you've heard this argument a million times. People are going to come out and say, this is identity politics. This is dividing us by race and color and, and, uh, and ethnicity or criticism you've heard. What do you say to that when people do that? All politics is identity politics. When we talk about rural voters, that's mm -hmm. an identity. When we talk about white working class voters, that's an identity. We talk about men voting. That's an identity. In fact, American politics was based on identity politics, being that if you were only, only if you were a wealthy land-owning white man were you allowed to vote from the beginning. So every moment of progress in our voting structure has always been about adding new identities to who gets to vote. Mm -hmm. My issue is you can't separate identity from the way we live our lives. Being a woman of color, there are conversations about my economic capacity. There are tax structures that are designed to help me and to hurt me. You have certain privileges and certain deficiencies that come to politics because of who you are and where you're from. Mm -hmm. Identity politics is who we are. That's why we have campaigns. The issue is what primacy do we give identity, and do we acknowledge that everyone has an identity, and therefore we have a responsibility to understand the complexity and to work towards making certain that no one's identity disadvantages them in our body politic. There has uh, been, uh, the last few weeks, we've seen many attempts uh, nationally, locally, here in the Bay Area, all over the place, to divide us by race, mm -hmm. to divide us by uh, relitigating the Civil War in, in many ways. Um, so, but in Georgia, there's a, um, there's, we, when we talk in Confederate monuments, let's talk about this. There, I remember, and I was, I covered the 96 Olympics, uh, and I, I remember going to Stone Mountain. And Stone Mountain, for, for people who don't know what this is, this is a public park, correct? Yes. And the, and it, in there, and they have all kinds of like you know boats mm -hmm. and rowboats and park space, and they have a giant laser show at night. Yes. And the laser show, but during the day, it's on this massive uh, wall, and it's there is the have the largest relief sculpture in the world, yes. and it's Confederate uh, icons: Jefferson, President Jefferson Davis of the Confederacy, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, mm -hmm. and these. This isn't just like a statue of Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville. <laughs> this is three acres larger than a football field and Mount Rushmore. Yes. If I'm going by my Wikipedia. You're this, absolutely right. This is massive. It's huge. Um, what, and, and what do you do about it? That's, and, it's, and it's not something, it kind of started, was built 100 years ago, or started 100 years ago, but then it was kind of like in bits and pieces, and, but it sort of has been revived you know, during the 60s and the 70s. This is not something that has been a long-time historical monument. So, what do you do about something like that? So let's add to the history. In 1915, the Venable Brothers, who restarted the Ku Klux Klan, yes, thank you for they that. purchased that edifice. Mm -hmm. They then deeded it to the United Daughters of the Confederacy as part of a nationwide strategy that was being proliferated across the country to terrify and terrorize blacks and Jews who lived in the South and were had the temerity to believe that they were equal citizens. And so as part of a nationwide system of domestic terrorism, this was created. It took years to carve that edifice. Mm -hmm. And in the wake of Charlottesville, in the wake of uh, Donald Trump equivocating about why Charlottesville was an, just an abhorrent act, mm -hmm. I was asked the question, do you think that Stone Mountain should stand? As a first principle, I do not believe there should ever be a state-sponsored monument to domestic terrorism in America. Now, how you solve that problem 
is one for architects, artists, and for people to discuss. But do I believe that we should do something about it? Absolutely. There are those who say that I'm trying to erase history. I'm not. You think you, you've said that, the, the, correct me if I'm wrong, Absolutely. that these, these uh, statues, not necessarily Stone Mountain, belong in a museum somewhere. Absolutely. It, we not, we're not erasing history. This isn't like uh, Soviet Union tearing down statues and stuff like that. This is, these things should be in a museum. Because people have written <clears throat> to me and compared it to Germany. Mm-hmm. And Germany, the, too. Yeah. Here's the thing. In Germany, what you find are actual moments of history that have been preserved in their space. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about are things that were put into place post-Reconstruction for the express purpose of terrorism and to rewrite the history of the Civil War. You cannot then iconize them and treat them as though they were born out of that moment. Mm -hmm. Now, there are plaques across the South that commemorate the um, different battles, and I think they should stay. But these edifices and these monuments that create a false narrative are not history. And as long as they are celebrated by the public, they are treated as history. Mm. They need the proper context. But beyond that, we have to, as politicians, and this goes back to my, my belief in how I run, mm. people have to know where you stand if, they, if you want them to follow you. I'm not going to equivocate about whether or not I think it is a good idea for us to celebrate the terrorization of people of color and of those of different faiths. I think it is wrong. I think it should not be celebrated. But I'm certainly open to figuring out how you solve it, which is how I've always led. That's one of the reasons I was an effective minority leader. Probably the best compliment I ever got from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution was that they called me strangely relevant. <laughs> Strange, strangely, strangely relevant. Strangely relevant. That's, yeah. a, that's an interesting uh, uh, tag on that. Uh, how about uh, football? Uh, <laughs> let's talk football because sure. this is America's, America's greatest sport. Um, my hometown Pittsburgh Steelers stayed in the locker room, for the, except mm-hmm. for, for one. There was a little bit of a mix-up there. Uh, your uh, Atlanta Falcons uh, went out with their owner. and I, did, they take, they, did they take a knee or did they, they just linked arms? Linked, linked arms. This is, first of all, two things. What, what do you think of these responses? And this has gotten away. We're, we're now debating kneeling versus standing versus what the core Absolutely. Um, original protest was on this, which is uh, uh, mass incarceration uh, and, and, uh, and the mistreatment of, uh, of people of color throughout, this, throughout our nation's history. First of all, let's go back. Football. What do you think of these protests? Is this, is this an appropriate thing to do? Absolutely. We're mm-hmm. Americans. I, I, there was a little controversy earlier this year with me. Protest is necessary in America. It is part mm-hmm. of our responsibility. And as long as that protest is peaceful and civil, it should be allowed to happen because that is how we make change in our country. Do you think it's disrespectful to the flag or to the national anthem? It is celebratory of what those two things mean. The national anthem, if we recall, was about rebellion. It was about protesting. Mm -hmm. We were protesting the fact that there was a government that was not serving us properly, that was not doing what it should. And in response, we fought. Now, I would prefer that we kneel as opposed to the type of rebellion that is celebrated by the national anthem and by the founding of our nation. Because our nation was founded to create a safe space so that we don't have to go to war to make change. We don't have to take up arms to make things different. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that any leader worth his or her salt would celebrate this moment because it is exactly who we are. It has always been who we are. 
I come from a family of veterans, and I don't know of a single person in my family who would say that it is the wrong thing to do to celebrate our democracy and our American nature than to protest those things that are not where they should be so we can move them forward. And why the kneel versus the, the just link arms or whatever? What, why well, I, I think that we're, we're now parsing out what happens yes, because we're, we're, the reality is Colin Kaepernick began by kneeling. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a sign of respect, but also a sign of protest. That's what we want. We want people who respect who we are, but protest when we are not our best selves. Mm-hmm. In fact, we had a guy run for president saying that America wasn't great anymore and that he needed to make it great again. And no one found that problematic. They all bought hats. Mm-hmm. So we have to be willing to say that it is also appropriate for people who find that their nation is not being its best self should be allowed to call that out and demand better. And as long as we are Americans, that should always be what we are allowed to do. Let's talk about your race a little bit. Um, and I know in the Bay Area, you know, uh, California, maybe people just meeting you now. Uh, and many donors, I, many donors out there, many people, even if they're given five, ten bucks, might be thinking, another race in Georgia. I have <laughs> John Ossoff uh, whiplash syndrome. I have PTSD. I gave money to this guy. We, he got $30 million, more than any other House candidate ever, and he, and he whiffed. Um, <laughs> now again, you are you've been, you've served as the minority leader in the in the legislature. You you're an accomplished politician. Also, essentially walking off the street and decided to run for office. Explain to us why this is different, and and, and if you have if you'd like to reassure donors that here. they <laughs> are, are I'm going to go direct to yeah, camera here. <laughs> yeah, go go direct to camera one. We only I, have one. Number one, John, I think did a great job, but I think in the the hullabaloo over his election, we forgot the fundamentals. He was in a 20-point-plus Republican district in a special election that had a very short runway. To force Republicans to spend more than $30 million to defend a seat that they had walked into mere weeks before is an extraordinary moment of progress. More than that, what John did was activate voters in a special election who had not bothered to turn out in midterms in years. But here's the difference. I'm running for governor of Georgia. Georgia is not the 6th district. We're not as wealthy, and we are much more diverse. And as the candidate there, the math is clear. I need to find 200,000 voters who are willing to stand up and say, I'm proud to be a Democrat, and I'm ready to vote because I believe in you and I trust you. I'm doing this out of a pool of more than a million voters who we normally ignore. But it takes money, and that's one of the reasons people come to San Francisco and travel the country not just because of the money, but because California has become a bastion for that type of progressive politics. Mm-hmm. And there's something very soporific about being able to come to a place where you can talk about those values to people who understand that investing in those values matters. And so for me, the conversation is this. I'm running for governor because I believe, not as a quixotic, you know, tilted windmill, but because I can do math, because I can do politics, because I've started businesses, I know how to make Georgia stronger. And to invest in that, I need to raise money. And to raise that money, I need to talk to people who've seen it work, who've seen that if you invest in startups, you can create thriving communities. If you invest in education or refuse to invest in education, there is a marked difference in how your your children grow up. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as a matter of politics and math, my campaign and my election is a very solid bet. Uh, Because there's a universe of more than a million, and I need 200,000, 
And unlike every candidate who's run for this race in recent years on my side of the aisle, I'm not running to convince Republicans to become Democrats. I'm running to convince Democrats that it's worth being a Democrat publicly and casting your vote for a better life. Speaking of, you just sort of alluded to your to your primary challenger, Stacey mm-hmm. Evans. Mm-hmm. There's two Stacey's running. That must be talk about voter confusion there. I'm first, so there yeah, you go. You're first. There you go. Um, she is also has a compelling backstory. She mm-hmm. has a, 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 a she was a state legislator. Mm-hmm. She also recently resigned. Um, she lived in. She had a video out that said she lived in 16 homes by the time mm-hmm. she was 18. Uh, mothers and a series of abusive ra- relationships and, and, and such. Very, very, uh, and she went on also to become an attorney, won a class action mm-hmm. suit, and started a scholarship fund, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Very compelling backstory. And, she was, yeah. and you guys served together in the legislature, okay. banged heads on some things, and, 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 and worked together on mm-hmm. others. Um, but she has, her philosophy is not in terms of um, how she would build her voter base. is a different one, and, and you sort of alluded to it. Tell us how you're different than she is. Um, Representative Evans is approaching this as yet another opportunity to convince voters who have not voted in the Democratic column in decades to suddenly decide they're going to vote Democratic. Uh, The notion is that because of uh, Trump, there's going to be some wave that galvanizes this change. I would say, looking back at the Ossoff race, it's, demonst- it's demonstrable that that wave has limits. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the Trump effect is less about convincing those Republicans to be Democrats and mm-hmm. more about convincing Democrats to come out and show they're Democrats. Mm-hmm. But her narrative, her theory of the case, is that her, her backstory and her um, campaign will convince those lapsed Republicans to come out. I, I would say that that is unlikely to happen if you simply look at the last few election cycles. Uh, in 2014, we had the grandson of, the, of a president who ran. Uh, Jason Carter ran a strong race, but he ran a race with a similar theory, and he did not win. Mm-hmm. I do not understand why we keep replicating strategies that have not succeeded. Now, what someone will try to say is, well, I'm trying to divide us, saying, you know, I'm going to go after black people and she's going after white people. That's not true. We both want to build the strongest party. But the difference is I want to build our party from the inside out and not spend our time trying to convince those to come in who said repeatedly they don't want to come. I want to build a coalition of voters who share my values, who share my principles, and that's progressive whites, that's people of color, but it's also any disaffected voter who hears my message and wants to be a part of it. Mm. But what I'm not willing to do is ignore the very real possibility of engaging communities of color in ways we have never done before because we discount their votes and disregard the need to early and often invest in their value. Now, some Democrats are going to hear this and, and just, just face palm. They're like, oh, my God, this is the, the party. We have, we have two decent candidates, and we're just, we're gonna, this is a Bernie and Hillary thing. We're going to eat our own. What do you, what do you say to folks who are? Well, we're Democrats. We yeah. believe that if you want to run, you should be allowed to run. I'm not going to spend this campaign disparaging my opponent. I'm going to disagree with her on policies. She has long voted for privatization of public education. Uh, she has voted for every single one of those policies. I've never voted for a single one, and in fact, I've fought every one of them. Uh, we disagree on some gun issues. Uh, she has voted for legislation that would actually put guns back on the streets. I've never voted for a gun bill. We have policy disagreements, and we should talk about those. We have, uh, we have disagreements about how we win this election, and we should talk about that. But I respect Stacey Evans. I think that she is smart. I think she is savvy. 
I think she is not right on education issues. I think she has made poor votes on other issues. And I think it's important in an election for people to have a clear contrast. But that is never an excuse for ad hominem attacks. And it is not a reason to destroy our party. Uh, I believe that we can run this election and give voters enough information so that they can make a solid choice without destroying our party. Because if we can't, then we have to have a conversation about who we are as Americans. Uh, we should be able to have a contrastive conversation without that contrast becoming you know, visceral and destroying who we are. And uh, one question we have here from uh, about a, a Georgia question from uh, Mark. He says, he asked, what is uh, Stacy's vision for delivering 22nd century education services to the rural areas? He's skipping the whole back <laughs> half of the 21st century. Uh, but you're, you're uh, uh, it's a K-12 system Absolutely. there, obviously. And, and um, he said it's fragmented between city and country. What do you, how do you help the rural areas? Well, I think you have to start from the very beginning. Uh, there are three things you need to understand. One, it's more expensive to educate a rural child, a poor child, or a child who speaks English as a second language. We then have to add additional dollars to our funding formula to account for those differences. Number two, we have to actually educate children, no matter where they live in Georgia, as though we value their education. And that, for me, means we start with high-quality childcare. We cannot wait until K through 12. Cognitive development begins at birth. So we have to talk about education from cradle to career. So it's high-quality childcare that's available and affordable. It is expanding pre-K to cover three-year-olds and four-year-olds. It is using K through 12 to actually teach the skills that matter for children. There's no reason we can't have robotics programs in every school system in Georgia. There's no reason that STEM is relegated to only those, those schools that can afford it. We should teach STEM and STEAM skills, so arts and music as well, in every one of our classrooms, because otherwise we are not providing a 22nd century education. We have to believe that education is for every child, no matter where they live, because right now we educate our children for a low-wage economy. There is nobility in service work, but we should give our children the choice of the type of work they have. And that means we have to build our children and educate our children for a knowledge economy. And that means we have to make certain that we're investing in every child in every community and not in just those that can afford it. All right. And let's, and let's talk about the issue everybody wants to talk about, which is your, your mystery romance yes. novel. Now, I'm, I, I am, I'm not familiar with the job. All okay. I think of is, is Fabio, you know, uh, on the cover. And, you know, these are bod- <laughs> this is, these aren't bodice rippers. I, I, you know? I write romantic suspense. Ro- romantic uh, so, suspense. So, so translate we, what that means. So if me. your readers read uh, Nora Roberts, um, she's probably the most well-known. But basically, I write romance novels where I kill a lot of people and whoever survives gets to fall in love. Uh, so <laughs> my first three novels were romantic espionage. So they're yeah. spy novels. I actually started my first book as a spy novel based on my ex-boyfriend's dissertation. He and I had a bit of a tumultuous breakup, but his dissertation was really interesting. Wow. Um, and, and so you wrote this afterwards. It's like right, like doing an album after you break up, and it's like you we, know, a very he, heartfelt album. He sent it to me. We kept talking, and then it remind, reminded me of why we broke up. So he's actually in prison in the book. Um, I was slightly petty. Uh, so the first three... <laughs> That's the ultimate revenge. It, it, although I did acknowledge him in the, in the opening... In the oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, still put him in prison because it was a really bad breakup. But <laughs> I did. Um, so the uh, first three were espionage. Uh, the fourth one was actually a serial killer romance novel. It's wow. very romantic once you get past all the people who die. I'm, I'm now getting frightened getting inside your head here. <laughs> My younger sister actually was disturbed by that one. But it was a, it's a really fun okay. book. 
then the next two were Action Adventure, and then the last two, uh, or the first two books in a trilogy, I haven't quite finished the third book, uh, set in Georgia, uh, based on around a sort of very complicated mystery story about three orphans and a terrible crime they committed when they were young. Oh my but they God, each wow. find their way back home, and they find the man they love, and possibly find justice. And when do you find time to write? Is this, <laughs> is this is like your, your event, your release? When do, you, when do you write? So I started writing in law school. And after that, I just, I'm a fairly fast writer. Plus, once you've spent the advance, they either want their book or their money back. So I got very good at writing quickly and getting my books done. Very good. I haven't actually written a romantic suspense novel since 2010 when I became minority leader because uh-huh. the contract I was in was going to have me doing it every nine months, and that just wasn't tenable. Oh, my God. Wow. Plus, I started a new business called Now Account, a payment solutions company that I started with a friend of mine that's actually doing really well in the fintech space. But I am now working on a new book called The Minority Leader, uh, and it is with um, Henry Holt Books. So it's wow. coming out in April, and it's about how to lead from the outside and create real change. But this is, that's a... It is a much more sedate... Is that a nonfiction book? It is, is nonfiction. Okay, all right. Uh, but is I that still, a how-to kind of? Or? Well, it's a combination, so okay. it's a little bit of... That's your campaign book. Well, I, I would say this. I It is coming out at the time of my campaign, although I started writing it a few years before. I just kept getting disrupted by these campaigns. Um, in these elections. But it is. It's about leadership. But more importantly, it's about the fact that, going back to your opening comment, I'd be the first black woman in American history to be governor. Uh, In Georgia, I was the first woman to lead either party in the history of the state. Uh, It is hard to figure out how to be a leader when you have very few people to look at who look like you. And so this book is about that. Thank you. That was going to be actually my my last question is you you had a series of firsts. I mean, you're the the first uh, African-American woman who was a valedictorian in your high school class. I mean, this is like, you know, youngest uh, deputy city attorney and and the things you mentioned. What... What do you, where do you go for that? Where do you go for role modeling? Uh, or, and what is there, is there a unique pressure on you when you have these things? Or are you just like, I'm just doing this? I begin with the, I'm just doing it. Mm-hmm. But I think you always want to find roadmaps and guides and people who can help you. And so for me, it's been finding people maybe who haven't done exactly what I've done, but have faced similar challenges. Yeah. Uh, but I also like to read about people who've done what I've done completely wrong. Uh, because I think it's just as instructive to figure out what not to do as it is to figure out what to do. Uh, I come from two parents who are remarkable people who each in their own way have overcome extraordinary odds. Mm-hmm. And their relentless belief in their children and what we can accomplish creates a sense of confidence that I don't think you have to have my parents to have. Mm-hmm. But I think I can talk about what they taught us about who we are. Uh, you know, My parents produced six kids. My oldest sister is the first woman. I think first person of color to be a tenured professor at Center College in Kentucky. My sister Leslie is the first African-American woman to be a federal judge in the state of Georgia. My brother Richard is a social worker who works with kids, foster care kids. My little sister Janine has a PhD in molecular, uh, in evolutionary biology and works at the CDC. But I also have a brother, Walter, who uh, is in prison. He dropped out of Morehouse College. He has a drug addiction and has a mental health disorder. He's bipolar, and he was untreated for decades I believe as much in what Walter can be as I do in whatever you know what my siblings have become, and that's because my parents raised us to believe in our potential, but also to believe in redemption. And I think for me, the being first is not only about what I can do, but it's also about the mistakes I've made and how can other people see those mistakes to do better on their own. 
And what does your what window does your brother give you? Because you have a very high achieving family. My goodness. Um, and uh, but what window does your brother give you? Because you talked about mass incarceration. Obviously, is an issue you're you're dealing with. What what has he told you about the system and about the way things are and the way things could be? Walter, uh, you know, Walter committed crimes and he went to jail. And while my sister Leslie and I are both lawyers, we helped him. We didn't try to get him out because he needed to pay for his crimes. Mm-hmm. The problem was when Walter was released, there was no reentry program for him. He couldn't find a job. He couldn't find a place to live. He couldn't get health insurance to pay for his bipolar medication. Uh, my sisters and I, my brothers, we all organ- we rallied around him to help. My parents did, but they're raising his daughter, and they're taking care of my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And so there was only so much they could do. We were able to find Walter a place to live, but the place we found him was in the exact wrong community, a community of drug addicts, a community of people who were also struggling without any support systems. Mm-hmm. We were able to get him health insurance through the Affordable Care Act, but again, that relied on him to be able to stabilize enough to go and fill his prescriptions and stay on his regimen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I know is that government has a responsibility not only for the rehabilitation, but for reentry, and that our responsibility, especially when it comes to criminal justice reform, is to treat our returning citizens as returning citizens, where we are willing to invest in their stabilization and recognize that you can't expect someone to take care of themselves when they don't have the capacity to do so because the system says they can't. Mm-hmm. When you can't get a job, when there are federal laws against you being able to live in certain places, it makes it difficult. And that's one of the spaces for me, both as a person and as a politician and as a public servant. Walter reminds me every day that I have to do this not only for the 21st, 22nd century child, but for those people who've made mistakes but deserve an opportunity to thrive. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm running for governor. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on. It's all political. Good to see you. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Our guest was Stacey Abrams, who may be a governor someday. Read more about local coverage of politics and subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com. I'm Joe Garofoli, and no matter who you are or what you're doing, remember... It's all political. You've been listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Our executive producer is Fernando Diaz. Our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. And our producers are Peter Hartlaub, Brittany Schell, and Claire Varellis. It's all political's theme music. We have theme music. It's called Cattle Call by Randy Clark's Crow Song. The Chronicle's Josh Zucker, who is our podcast's musical director, is on bass. If you like what you heard, good news, there's more. Listen to Chronicle Podcasts and get bonus content at sfchronicle.com backslash podcasts, plural, or subscribe to iTunes, Stitcher, or other streaming services. <laughs>